Let's uh, open up our Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 15. We've got two very exciting chapters in front of us. It might seem strange to you that we're going to cover two chapters this evening, but if you notice, chapter 15 is only eight verses, and chapter 16 isn't terribly long itself, and they go together very marvelously thematically. A very interesting characteristic of the book of Revelation is that it is written more like an Old Testament book especially like one of the writings of the Old Testament prophets, than any of the other books in the New Testament. And one of the very characteristic ways that Old Testament prophets would speak, and this is true of Hebrew literature in general, is it would use a lot of repetition to make emphasis. It'll say something and then say it again and then say it a little bit different way and then fill in other details along the way. And what I find very fascinating about the book of Revelation Because it does not follow a strict chronological order, is it brings us up to the brink of the return of Jesus Christ, and then it pulls back and shows us more details. For example, at the end of Revelation chapter 6, it looked like Jesus was returning. I mean, the kings of the earth were fleeing for caves and and asking for the rocks to hide because the Son of God was coming and appearing in the sky. And then the tape rolled back again. And we talked about more events leading up to the return of Jesus Christ. Now, at the end of chapter 14, it sure sounds to me like Jesus is coming back. It talks about the, the, the wrath of God coming down and bringing forth the, the vintage, bringing forth the, the uh, vintage of the earth into the winepress of God. And it's the picture of the great harvest that God is bringing uh, up into heaven, both uh, of the godly and the ungodly. Sure sounds like Jesus is returning there. And then we back it up again. So here we come to Revelation chapter 15, verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. The idea of the wrath of God being complete is very interesting because that word wrath there is a little unusual for the words that God uses uh, in his word for anger. There are two words for wrath or anger in the ancient language that the Bible was written in. There's the word uh, thymos, which refers to a violent, passionate anger. It has the idea of an outburst of anger. Not necessarily losing your temper, but I mean it means business. It's an outburst of anger. Then there's another ancient Greek word which describes anger from a settled disposition. Now, most of the time, when it talks about God's anger against sinful humanity or rebellious mankind, it uses the idea of God's anger in a settled disposition. I mean, God doesn't like it when his creatures destroy themselves and rebel against him. But the word that's used right here is the word thymos, which means that that flashing out of God's anger. Matter of fact, that word thymos for God's anger is used only 11 times in the entire New Testament, and 10 of the 11 are in the book of Revelation. Because it is the book where God's anger, his judgment, flashes forth. And we see that very clearly here in the introduction. Verse 1, it says, Having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. So we know what to expect. We know to expect seven plagues that will, will finalize, will put a ribbon, which will be the concluding act in this great drama that we've known as the Great Tribulation. But fortunately, we're not left with that scene. It transitions again now to verse 2, where we read, And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. Very interesting. We know that the Bible says that before the throne of God, there is a sea of glass. We don't know exactly what that means. But we do know something that's characteristic of a body of water, or at least something that would appear to be water in that setting, is that it reflects. One of my favorite things to do, although it's been a few years since I've done it, is go to a particular lake in the high Sierras and go fly fishing at that lake. I love going there. And uh, when you go up to those mountain lakes on a sunny day and you look into the lake, it's the most beautiful thing, you see the mountain peaks that surround the lake reflected in the lake. And if the mountaintops are all covered with snow, you see that in the lake, don't you? 
I suppose if there was a burning fire on the mountaintop, you would see that in the reflection of the lake. Well, that may very well be what's spoken of here in verse 2, where it says, I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. The idea of the sea mingled with fire probably speaks of divine judgment proceeding from God's holiness being reflected in that sea. And I think it's remarkable to think of the fires of judgment that are going to come forth from the throne of God right at this time in Revelation chapter 15, and it's staggering to think that it's going to come right from the throne. Sometimes we lose sight of that. We lose sight that God's judgment comes right from Him. From his own throne. Now, if you notice, that's not the only thing that you see in verse 2. You saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. Now, the ones who have victory over the beast are those who are victorious over the Antichrist in their faithfulness unto death. They're the tribulation martyrs that were described way back in Revelation chapter 7. Now, I don't think we should say that these are necessarily people who survived the great tribulation. As much as we can glean any kind of chronology from the book of Revelation, it's a dicey thing to try to establish chronology. But it seems that these were those who were probably martyred during the great tribulation. And yet here they are, they have victory over the beast in heaven. He could kill their bodies, right? But he couldn't kill their souls. They stand before the throne of God on that sea of glass with this tremendous testimony of victory. And so here they are, they're standing on the sea of glass before God's throne. One of the more interesting things in the Bible is the structure and the architecture, if you could say, the design of the tabernacle in ancient Israel. And the Bible tells us very plainly that the tabernacle was built according to the pattern of what's up there in heaven. In some way, it's a model of the throne of God. Now, there is a pool of water in the tabernacle. It's not actually standing in the tent, but it's in the whole tabernacle structure. It's in the courtyard standing in front of the tabernacle, as this sea is in front of the throne of God. And this laver, this a pool full of water that was used in the tabernacle services, was used for washing, for purification. I find it very interesting that the book of Ephesians says that we are washed by the water of the word. And so I want to suggest a picture to you here. If you want to make some connections, if you want to connect some dots in biblical understanding, you could say that what represented this sea of glass in the tabernacle was the uh, uh, laver in the tabernacle structure, this pool of water. And what was there for the cleansing of the people of God in the Old Testament was there at the tabernacle, that pool of water, that laver. And what's here for our cleansing right now is what's given to us in Jesus Christ and communicated by his word. We're washed by the water of the word. You could say that these saints who are standing on the sea of glass are standing on the word before God's throne. I think there's another connection between that sea of glass and God's word as well. We spoke of the sea of glass and its reflective capability. And don't we have God reflected beautifully in his word. But here we see these saints. Again, there they are with their victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. Well, we saw previously in Revelation chapter 5 that the 24 elders surrounding the throne had harps. Apparently, they're not the only ones. God distributes musical instruments rather freely in heaven, and these all have harps of God. Now listen to the beautiful song that they sing, verse 3. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. They sing the song. It's a song with two titles. It's called the Song of Moses and also the Song of the Lamb. 
It's a perfect union between old covenant and new covenant, between law and love. That's what God's people sing in heaven. And this song, deeply rooted in images from the Old Testament, it gives praise to God's works. It says, great and marvelous are your works. Friends, right now in your mind, can you set your mind on something great that God has done? And then it says, great are your ways. It says, just and true are your ways. God, you you always perform with, with perfect justice, with perfect truth. They praise God's works, God's ways. Then they praise God's worthiness. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. Friends, the Lord God deserves our praise. It doesn't really matter if we feel like it or not. He's worthy of it. We're not accustomed to it in our own country because we don't have royalty. But in countries that have royalty, kings and queens and princes and princesses, there's a whole sort of protocol and etiquette surrounding the treatment of royalty. You just don't walk up to the king, stick out your hand, and say, Hiya, king, what's going on? No, there's an elaborate protocol. You only approach if you're asked to approach. You're reticent. You let them make the first move. You dare put forth your hand, expecting them to put forth theirs. And if you're wearing a hat, you better take it off. If you're a woman, you better curtsy. If you're a man, you better bow. Why? Well, because in the thinking of royalty, they're worthy. They're worthy of it. And you might say, well, I don't really feel like doing it. Well, the the chief of protocol will come along and say, Mr., I don't care whether or not you feel like doing it. This is the king. He's worthy of it. You, you, you observe the protocol. Friends, when it's time to worship God, observe the protocol. He's worthy of it. I mean, he's just worthy of it. It doesn't matter how good of a day you've had, how bad of a day. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter if you don't get a single thing out of worship. He's worthy of it. He's worthy And so we worship him, we glorify him, we praise him together. So they give praise to God's works, God's ways, God's worthiness. Then they even give praise to God's worship. Did you see there at the end of verse 4, it says, For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. Isn't it beautiful how the Bible time and time again casts its gaze beyond any single nation to all the nations? All the nations of the earth. God wants to do a work in every people. It's not just in one country or one continent or in one language. God wants to do a glorious work all over the earth and have this beautiful work among all nations. You know, I think it's so marvelous about this in verses 3 and 4 with the song of the Lamb. Check it out. I'll read it again and and I'll exaggerate an emphasis and you'll get the idea here. Uh, Verse 3 where it says, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come in before you. For your judgments have been manifested. What's the focus? It's God. It's God and God himself. Friends, it's it's an appropriate thing for us to examine our own hearts as we come before God and to reflect on where we're at but it should never predominate our worship experience. Our worship experience should predominate with God himself. It should be about him. Sometimes you you see a a pattern in worship choruses that are very self-reflected, very self-focused. It's all about me and how I feel and how that's... And again, there's a place for that. We don't want to say that there's no place for that, but it really is a matter of proportion, isn't it? In proportion, the honor, the credit, the focus, everything, it all belongs to God. And whatever we look at ourselves for, it really should just be for the end purpose of lifting up God all the more. It's all about Him. Isn't that a beautiful thing to realize in your life? It's not about you. It's about God. It's not about Ineas. It's about Him. And when the Master's glorified, then, then the servants are satisfied. Well, but here you have it with the angels and their bowls of judgment. Verse 5. After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. 
Now again, as I said before, we're told very specifically that what exists in heaven was modeled for us in the tabernacle that God told Moses to build in the wilderness as instructed in the book of Exodus. And so what we have in verses 5 and 6 is an observation on the heavenly reality, not the earthly copy. And out of this temple, out of this tabernacle, come seven angels having the seven plagues. They come right from God's presence. These are angels that have been right around the throne of God. They're special emissaries of God. And they come clothed with pure, bright linen and golden bands around their chest. Friends, those are emblems of purity and of strength and of holiness. Should that not remind us that these angels who bring God's judgment are pure and righteous and holy? Of course, they're not God. But in regards to angelic purity and angelic righteousness, they have it. Friends, I want you to realize something that God and and his agents and in judgment, they're not like the modern day anti-hero or vigilante. You know, today, a lot of times when you watch a cops and, and robbers movie, it's hard to tell who the good guys are, right? Because the good guys are usually just as bad as the bad guys. You know, and, and that's the story today. You know, everybody's bad. That's the story. And, and the guy out doing what's good, well, he's just a vigilante. He's an anti-hero. I kind of like the old days. Where in the movies, you could tell who the good guys were. You know, and the good cowboy was wearing the white hat. And, you know, he, you know, he was good. He walked up to the saloon and he ordered a milk, for heaven's sakes. And, you know, he didn't mess around with the dancing girls in the saloon. You know, he was an upright guy. And now, you know, it's, well, it's more honest. The characters, we have to make them more complex and all this. Well, you know, there's a place for good writing and all, but good heavens, friend. You know, to punish evil, you don't have to be evil. To, to be an agent of God's righteousness, you don't have to be unrighteous. God isn't. And, and these angels aren't. So here they go, ready to do their work. Verse 7, Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The, the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one was able to enter the se- temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. You feel the tension rising here in heaven. These bowls full of the wrath of God. Isn't that a vivid picture? you got these bowls. They're really what they'd be like as saucers filled with the wrath of God. There's a potion. You, you almost think of a bubbling potion, you know, spilling over the sides and steam coming up. And the angels are going to go and pour this out on the world and judgment is going to go forth. The idea is not, if you have a King James Version, it'll say vials, golden vials full of the wrath of God. And that, you know, that makes you think of a perfume bottle, right? Well, actually, it's, it's not like a perfume bottle at all. Perfume bottles are made so that the contents do not come out very quickly, right? That's not the idea behind these things at all. The, these golden bowls, these, these saucers, they're made to be able to dispense the contents quickly. I mean, you have a saucer of milk, you just pour it out and it's out. It's not like a bottle where it sort of it halts as it come out. No, this, this comes out speedily. And here are the, the bowls and the cloud. They come from the glory of God and from his power. God is going to come forth and exercise his glory on the world as we see here in verse 1 of Revelation 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. It sounds scary, doesn't it? Now, it's a loud voice from the temple that says it, right? Now look at verse 8. It says, the temple was, I mean of the previous chapter, verse 8 of chapter 15. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. So who's the only one in the temple? God. So the voice that comes from the temple in Revelation 16.1 has to be the voice of God. He specifically initiates these horrific judgments that are going to come upon the earth in the last part of the Great Tribulation. And they're instructed to go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. And here it comes. Now friends, as we get into these plagues described in Revelation chapter 16... Some people want to say that the plagues are symbolic. 
And it's hard to say that when we read the descriptions, as we're going to read them shortly, that we understand everything that it says. I mean, who can say that they know exactly how all this is going to look and how it's all going to be and how it's all going to be? Who can say that with precision? Nobody. But at the same time, friends, this is not going to be a symbolic judgment that comes upon the earth. It's going to be a real literal judgment, and let me remind you of something, that whenever a symbol is used in the Bible, the reality is greater than the symbol. If the symbol is terrifying, think of what the reality must be. But friends, again, you have to be very careful about over-symbolizing or over-spiritualizing what's right before us. I mean, take a look at it there in verse 1, where it says, go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. Now, as I prepare for a teaching, I'll read several different commentaries and several commentaries from people who have different perspectives on the book of Revelation than perhaps my own. I was interested to read several commentaries by people who largely believe that the the book of Revelation is a book that's just all fulfilled in history. You can look at it and you can see, well, you know, where it says the beast, that's the Antichrist, and we see the struggle, that's the Great Reformation, and we see, they just look for different events in history to describe uh, what happens in the book of Revelation. Well, they have a hard time when they say the bowls of the wrath of God were poured out on the earth. Because it's kind of hard to find a time in history where this universal wrath came upon all the earth. And so Matthew Poole, in his commentary, he gives forth his suggestions on what the earth might mean in trying to make sense. Well, he says the earth might mean some parts of the earth, or the earth might mean the common people, or the earth might mean the Roman Empire, or the earth might mean the Roman Catholic clergy. Friends, the point's clear. If the earth doesn't mean the earth, then nobody can tell what it means. And God may have well not have written it. Right? I mean, that's just all a guessing game. We could say that what we have here is a secretly encoded recipe for fruit salad. And it's our job to just figure it out. No, friends, the words mean things. And it might mean more than we can understand. But these are not empty symbols. Verse 2. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Imagine that. Towards the end of the great tribulation, God is going to have an angel pour out a bowl, and, and who knows if that happens literally, but this judgment will certainly come literally upon the earth. And a foul and loathsome sore will come upon every person on earth who has taken the mark of the beast. Isn't it dramatic how God works his judgment? God says, you want a mark? You'd like a mark, would you? I'll give you a mark. Here's my mark for those who take the mark of the beast. And now they're marked by God with loathsome sores. Here's the second bowl, verse 3. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. Now back in chapter 8, in one of the previous judgments, it described a partial contamination of the sea. But here the contamination is made complete. Every living creature in the sea died, and it became blood as of a dead man. Now it doesn't mean that the sea necessarily becomes blood, but it becomes as of a corpse's blood. It's in its appearance and sickening character. It's like the, the congoagulated blood of a dead body. It's disgusting. The third bowl, verse 4. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Now again, Back in Revelation chapter 8, we saw a partial contamination of the springs and the fresh waters of the earth, but but now it's a complete contamination. And I think this gives us a clue that the bold judgments come at the very, very end of the Great Tribulation. Because, friends, with such widespread pollution all over the earth, how could mankind survive for any length of time at all? We know from this that the days are short upon the earth. But don't you see the irony in God's judgment again? You see, these people, these agents of the Antichrist and those partisans who have taken his mark, they thirsted after the blood of the saints. They massacred 
the saints and left their blood everywhere. God says, you want blood? I'll give you blood. Here are oceans of blood. Here are rivers and lakes of blood. You wanted a mark? Here's a mark. You wanted blood? Here's blood. Isn't it a frightening thing, friends, to think that so often, so often, what the judgment of God entails is simply giving wicked man what he wants? It's sobering, isn't it? In the depravity of our hearts, in our fallen nature, in in who we are in Adam, what do we want? We want to be far from God. Adam, in his sinful fallen condition, did he run to God or did he hide from him? Now you amplify that through generations of sin. You amplify that through our own sinful decisions, compounding what we have inherited from Adam. And you're left in the end with mankind pleading to God, don't come near me. And God says, fine. And that's your judgment. You see the righteousness of God's judgment reflected in verses 5, 6, and 7, where we read, And I heard the angel of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you've given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. They refused the living water. And now they've been given the waters of death. It's an amazing, friends. Again, in the very midst of this admittedly horrific judgment, the angel who brings forth the judgment declares, You are righteous, O Lord. Friends, can we remember that as a broad principle of God's justice, of God's judgment? Do you remember when God spoke with Abraham before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? And Abraham, in this brilliant scene from the pages of the book of Genesis, bargained with God over uh, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and uh, haggling God down to a specific number, saying, you know, if, if it's this many in the city, will you relent? Abraham was very confident that, well, you know, here, they're, they're easily this many in the city, right? I mean, the city will be spared. I mean, you got Lot and his kids and, and, and so many, and you know what? It wasn't enough. Because what God did was he took them out of the city, then he brought down the judgment. But friends, do you remember what Abraham said to the Lord? And he said it, I think, as a prophet of God at that moment. He said, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Friends, it's a rhetorical question, which means the answer to that is yes. Of course he will. God always does right by his judgments, always. And isn't that a beautiful comfort? I mean, sometimes we can't figure out the justice of God. Sometimes the people that seem to be the most deserving of God's judgment don't seem to get it. And sometimes the people that don't seem to be worthy of it all, it just seems like like calamity befalls them all the time. You scratch your head and say, well, what's going on? Well, friends, you know, we don't know, do we? Sometimes the people that we thought were so bad and needed God's judgment, you know what? You weren't seeing it right. And sometimes we think that the ones who are so right, usually it's ourselves, or I'll just speak for myself, (laughs) we're not as right as we thought we were, were we? But you know, God knows how to sort that out, doesn't he? Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Yes, he will. But doesn't that give you a peace? Don't you just say, ah, I can breathe out. I don't have to worry about this. I don't have to worry at the end of the day about about what God's going to do. He's going to do right. And even if I don't understand uh, how, what's right, or, or how it's going to be done, or all that God's going to do right. Here's another thing to consider. It says here in verse 7 that they heard another voice, another from the altar saying, even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. You know, the voice is either an angel speaking from the altar, or maybe it's the altar personified. It's funny thinking of this picture of an altar in heaven, isn't it? We know there's no sacrifice in heaven, right? But we have a few instances where we're presented with this picture of an altar in heaven. And this altar speaks, isn't it? 
It's a speaking altar. Now, I'll throw out something for you, and you can just file this in the realm of conjecture. I'll make a suggestion, though. I think that when we get to heaven and we see the altar that it's spoken of here, you know what we'll see? We'll see a cross. We'll see a cross where the Son of God was crucified. You see, that was God's altar, right? That's where the ultimate sacrifice and atonement was made. That's where the greatest sacrifice was made. And here the altar speaks, and what does it say? If that cross could talk, what would it say? It would say, even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. The Son of God died upon me. And he bore the wrath that the world deserved to take, and he, he bore it in himself. This is the altar where God in his love offered a way of escape from these judgments. Now we're to the fourth bowl in verse 8. And the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. Isn't it amazing? The things that we normally take for granted as blessings. Oh, it's a sunny day. Isn't it one of the suns out? It's beautiful. Suddenly that sun becomes a curse. And instead of bringing light and warmth and beauty to the world, now it's a curse. It's scorching men with fire. Now I know what you're saying. You're saying, listen, I'd get the message by now. Now I'm pretty hard-headed, you'd say. But, but after the loathsome sores come upon me, after all the, the, the seas of the world are turned into blood, after all the fresh waters are turned into blood, and all we're down is whatever drinking water was available in reservoirs or bottles or whatever, and that's it. And then, after the, the sun beats down upon all men and scorches them with fire, I'd be repentant by then, you'd say. Oh, would you? Look at it in verse 9. And they did not repent. And give him glory. Matter of fact, they blasphemed God. The failure of men to respond with repentance shows that knowledge of judgment or even the experience of judgment will not change man's sinful condition. Friends, people who are not won by the grace of God will never be won. Never. It's wishful thinking to think that men would repent if they only knew the power, if they only knew the righteous judgment of God. No. It's the hardness of human heart, of the human heart, even in the face of the most stringent discipline and judgment of God. We'll see more about this in, later in the chapter. Verse 10, the fifth bowl. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and did not repent of their deeds. Some see this as a symbolic darkness that comes upon the throne of the beast, and they say it's, it's crisis or difficulty within the government of the Antichrist. But friends, I don't think it's a symbolic darkness at all. We know that in the plagues of Egypt, God sent a darkness upon Egypt in the days of the Exodus, and it describes it as a darkness that could be felt. It will be more than the darkness that is the absence of light. It will be a darkness that's spiritual in its character tangible. It will hurt. How do we know it will hurt? Verse 10 says that they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. You know, that's a preview of hell itself, which is described by Jesus as the outer darkness and the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those under the judgment of the fifth bowl, they they stand as it were on the very shores of the lake of fire. What's their condition? You see it, verse 11. And they did not repent of their deeds. In man's sinful condition, he increases his sin when he's under God's judgment. I mean, at the very time when he should forsake his sin, what does he do instead? He increases it. Isn't that crazy? It's nuts. Let me read you something from Charles Spurgeon. He says, judgment may produce a carnal repentance, a repentance that is of the flesh. 
and after the manner of the sinful nature of men. In this repentance, the depravity of the heart remains the same in essence, although it takes another form of showing itself. Though the man changes, he is not savingly changed. He becomes another man, but not a new man. The same sin rules in him, but it is called by another name and wears another dress. The stone is carved into a more sightly shape, but it is not turned into flesh. The iron is cast into another image, but it is not transformed into gold. This carnal repentance is caused by fear. Does not every thief repent of robbery when he's convicted and sent to jail? Does not every murderer repent of his crime when he stands under the fatal tree? It doesn't save them. Spurgeon goes on to say, this is real repentance. When the man gives glory to the justice of God, even though it condemns him. You understand that? Friends, the criminal may recognize the justice of the court, but he doesn't glorify it. Real repentance says, I am a guilty sinner And God's justice is glorious. Spurgeon concludes and he says, Oh, my hearer, do you thus repent? Is sin really sinful to you? Do you see it's deserving of hell? If not, your repentance needs to be repented of. Well, let's see if the sixth bowl does it. Verse 12. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings of the earth, of the kings of the east, might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world, and to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew, Armageddon. Here you have the great river Euphrates dried up, and it becomes a roadway for the kings of the east. Again, who knows exactly how this might be fulfilled, but certainly we know that if the Euphrates River, a great and mighty river, If it was dried up, it would be a beautiful roadway for nations such as China and India and Japan, nations where there are billions of people to come and assemble huge armies to come to the Middle East, to come to the land of Israel itself, because they gathered together at a place called in Hebrew Armageddon, which is identified with Megiddo right there in Israel. Now, why do the armies come? Why do they gather together for battle? Is it to wipe out Israel? Is it to rebel against the Antichrist and his European-based kingdom? Ultimately, the Bible says that they come to do battle against God and his Messiah. Can you imagine that? Now, that may not be the pretext on which they gather together for this great battle at the place known as Armageddon. But friends, once they're there, they're going to assemble and not train their guns on one another. Please get it straight. The battle of Armageddon is not nation against nation. It's the nations against the returning Jesus Christ. That's a futile battle. That's one you should just give up on before it even starts. But the nations will be that foolish. The, the, the prophecies of the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, and other passages in the Bible, they will be so clear that they will have a very good idea of when Jesus Christ is returning, and they'll say, we're going to do what we can to keep him off of this earth. And it won't happen. But the armies, of course, will be gathered. The, these demonic spirits will go out and influence the kings of the earth, and they will gather them together to this great battle. And, and that is, as it says there, no, verse 14, to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. I like that. You know, friends, it's not going to be the great day of man. It's not going to be the great day of the Antichrist. It's not going to be the great day of Satan. It's going to be the great day of the Lord God Almighty. And right in the midst of that, boom, verse 15, Behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. In the midst of the description of the coming battle, there's a warning to be prepared in light of Jesus' assured victory. 
Don't you hear Jesus calling out to you saying, listen, I'm winning this one. I'm going to win this. You you need to see this. It's going to be my day of victory and nobody else's. Be ready for my return. So what does he say there in verse 15? How do you be ready? Well, first of all, you watch. Then you keep your garments so that you're not naked. Friends, it doesn't speak, of course, of a literal nakedness there. Well, no, I I take that back. It is a literal nakedness. It's just not a physical nakedness. It's a spiritual nakedness that's being spoken of here. You see, we're given the righteousness of Jesus as a garment. And we're called to put on the nature of Jesus in terms of practical holiness. And we must not be naked. We must not be without a covering. Or we must not try to provide our own covering like Adam and Eve did. Any such covering like that is regarded by God as mere filthy rags in his sight. So if you notice here in verse 16, it mentions the place where they gathered together. It's called in Hebrew, Armageddon. Actually, that's the combination of two Hebrew words, har and megiddo. Har means uh, valley. Excuse me, mountain. I'm sorry, I had that mixed up. Har means mountain. Megiddo means a place. What's interesting about this is uh, those people who believe that the book of Revelation is all fulfilled in history, they have an awful hard time with this battle. You know, just about every major battle that's ever happened in history, well, that, that was the battle of Armageddon. One commentator, Joseph Sy, says, some say the valley of Armageddon is in the great valley of the Mississippi. A few years ago, some said that it was Sebastopol or the Crimea. Others think it's France. While many take it as a mere symbolic place for an ideal assembly, it has no existence fact. To such wild, contradictory, and mutually exclusive notions are men driven once they depart from the letter of what's written. Friends, you know what the mountain of Megiddo is? It's right there near Megiddo in Israel. You can go to Megiddo. You can go and see the ruins of Megiddo. There, uh, down below, there, there's, a, there's a large hill with the ruins, a tell of Megiddo. And laying down below is this huge valley of Megiddo. It's a staggering thing to stand up in the city of Megiddo and look out across that plain. Maybe sometime you've driven on the uh, Interstate 5 and you've come down through Fraser Park into the, the uh, Imperial Valley there. And you look out in that central valley and you see just how huge it looks. It's something like that. You see this huge valley floor and you realize what an assembly of armies could take place in that area. It's interesting that through the centuries, Megiddo has been a region frequently associated with divisive battles. Deborah over Sisera, Gideon over the Midianites, Pharaoh over Josiah. It's also a place of end times mourning according to Zechariah 12. Historians tell us that over 200 battles have been fought in that region, all the way from 1,500 years B.C. with Pharaoh Thutmose III. The last major battle to take place there was in 1917, World War I, with Lord Allenby of the British. Friends, it's a literal place. It's the region of Megiddo and the Valley of Esdralon. Revelation chapter 16, 17, and 19 each described an organized battle, and it has to center somewhere. It'll center right there, in the valley of Megiddo. Now we find the final bowl, verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided in three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and great hail from heaven fell upon men, every hailstone about the weight of a talent, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because since or since that plague was exceedingly great. As you might imagine, those people who see Revelation as all history have a hard time with this passage. Friends, do you see what it says? I think some of the most wonderful words in the entire book of Revelation come from verse 17, where it says simply, 
it is done. It's like God saying, that's it. That announcement comes from the throne itself, and it tells us there is no more delay. Oh, you know how it's been in the book of Revelation. You lead up to the almost the brink, and then you pull back, and almost to the brink, and you pull back. No, no more delay. There it is. In mercy, God has stretched out the scene as much as he could. The, the seals were followed by trumpets. The trumpets were followed by bowls. And there was all sorts of delays and interspersings in there. But now there's no more judgments described upon the earth after this. It's done. I think it's fascinating to see that part of the judgment here, the seventh bowl, is a tremendous earthquake. It says, such a mighty and great earthquake as has not occurred since men were on the earth. How would you like to be on the earth for that one? Earthquakes are scary, amen? And if you think you've felt strong earthquakes in your day, what about this one that is to come? Nothing like it. And Babylon is remembered before God. We'll talk a lot more about Babylon next week and the week after in chapter 17 and 18. And then the hail falls from heaven. Uh, again, it's a, a huge, tremendous plague of hail. It's a frequent tool of God's judgment against his enemies. It was in uh, the Exodus against Egypt, against the Canaanites, and against apostate Israel and Isaiah. In each of these instances, hail rained down from heaven as a tool of judgment. Friends, despite all of this suffering, many were still not repent. You see this in verse 21. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail. Friends, there's a mistaken notion that somehow adversity or suffering leads people to Jesus Christ. Again, I could put it in my own words, but let me just read something from Charles Spurge. He says, I've known people to say, well, if I were afflicted, I might be converted. If I lay sick, I might well be saved. Oh, do not think so. Sickness and sorrow of themselves are no help to salvation. Pain and poverty are not evangelists. Disease and despair are not apostles. Look at the lost in hell. Suffering has affected no good in them. He that is filthy here is filthy there. He that was unjust in this life is unjust in the life to come. There is nothing in pain and suffering that by their own natural operation will tend to purification. Of course, the great thing that pain and suffering may do is make a person look outside of the natural operation and look unto God. We might say that Revelation chapter 16 is a great chapter in the Bible. It describes great evil, a great city, great Babylon. It describes great tools of judgment, great heat, a great river dried up, a great earthquake, great hail, and great plagues. And it describes a great God, his great voice, and his great day of victory. And friends, in the midst of the greatness of God's judgment... It came to me to consider three points, three points of application regarding the judgment of God. Number one, I think we have to say when we consider the awesome magnitude and severity of God's judgment, we have to say, we, and I speak as the human race, we deserve it. We deserve it, friends. I want you to think about that. As I said before, the Bible tells us, will not the judge of all the earth do right? And yes, he will. Friends, God is not a cosmic bully who beats up on man because he can get away with it and because he's bigger. No, God would never do that. He only does it because man deserves it. And it shows us the depths of our depravity, that we deserve this horrific judgment. As terrible as this judgment is, nobody could say God's piling it on. God's giving more. God's, God's stacking the deck. God's uh, returning you know, more than eye for an eye. No, no. It's all deserved. Secondly, not only do we as a human race deserve it, but I want to address everybody here tonight. You're a Christian, are you? You're born again by the Spirit of God then let us say that even we as Christians, we deserve it. Friends, don't think that just because now you're a Christian that you no longer deserve judgment. You most certainly do. But by his grace, 
God poured out the judgment that we deserve on Jesus Christ. We're not saved because we stopped deserving judgment. Don't Christians sometimes act like that compared to the world? Sinner. You're so deserving of hell. Friends, they are not one bit more deserving of hell than you are. They might even be less deserving of hell than you are. Friends, the issue isn't deserving. The issue is what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. Our salvation is because of what Jesus did, not because we have made ourselves less deserving of God's judgment. So we deserve it as a race. We deserve it as individuals, even as Christians. Friends, might I say the third application says, what great love of God that he would reach out in mercy and redemption to people who deserve judgment so much. Imagine in your mind the worst criminal, the one most utterly deserving of the strongest judgment, God reaching down from heaven and showing love to that individual. That's a great love. And sometimes we get it all mixed up about God's love. Sometimes we get the idea, well, I must be pretty great. God loves me. And we think that God loves me because I'm so great. Hello? Look in the mirror. Look in the mirror spiritually. Look in that mirror James talks about, right? No, my friends. Instead we say, not I am so great, God loves me. God is so great, he loves even me. But then you really believe it. You really believe that he loves you. He does, unreservedly. He loves you. He loves you because of what he's done in Jesus Christ. He loves you because you're in his son. And just as much as he showers his love on the son, he showers it on you. Friends, do you want to know if you're safe from the judgment of God? Then just put yourself in Christ. Will anybody here tonight stand up and say that Jesus Christ will again be the target of God the Father's judgment? No, it can't happen. Well, put yourself in Christ and you'll never ever be the target of the judgment of God because you'll be found in Him and you'll put yourself in the love of God and you'll receive that great love. Friends, you see how loving God is to offer a way of escape to undeserving humanity. And so he lifts up the cross before the world and he says, all who will come, 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 escape judgment. Come, here it is. And praise God, we can come. We can come and find his beautiful salvation. Lord God, I pray that your judgment would really make us consider the greatness of your love. You love us so much that, Lord, even though we deserve your judgment as much as anybody we've read about in Revelation 15 and 16, Lord, you you gave your Son to die for us, and we put our trust in that. And being found in Christ, we're no longer targets for your judgment, but for your love. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. We receive your love tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.